Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. So we started learning chapter 40 that when a Jew studies Torah with a proper intention, with the right motivation, with a conscious godly motivation, either because of the natural love that each and every Jew has towards Hashem or because of a profound love that you develop. Either way, in that case, the Torah mitzvah that you study is elevated and becomes godly, becomes absorbed in the ten sefirot, they become godly. If, however, you study Torah without any... Spectator. Spectator. Without any divine intention. You're doing it because out of habit, you're used to it. It's a duty, an obligation. You're not thinking about God. It's the last thing on your mind. You're not aware. You're not thinking of your love to God, of your obligation to God, of your connection to God. You're just doing it because you're a Jew and you're, you're trained. So you do it. You like it. You don't like it. You do it. Yeah, there's no negative intention. I'm not thinking about ego either. I'm not thinking about God. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just going through the grind. In that case, the Torah mitzvot are not elevated and do not become absorbed in the ten sefirot, do not become godly, but they are elevated to the spiritual realm, the realm of the angels, which are the external worlds, the consciousness, spiritual consciousness. And he brings a proof from the Zohar. We left out the Zohar last time. He brings four quotes from the Zohar in the note, 561. The first note is in the Zohar and this week's Torah portion that we're reading, that we're going to read this week. First note is, uh, yes, part three. Yeah, note Zohar, part three, right. Part three, yes. Yeah. So he quotes four, four different portions of the Zohar. The first quote from the Zohar, the Zohar speaks on this week's Torah portion, on the, on the Torah portion of Kedosh of you should be holy. The Zohar says, it says, a Jew should be holy. You should make yourself holy, and then you will be holy. So the Zohar says that everything depends on us. Hashem is interactive, and therefore, everything depends on us. If we act holy, we will evoke from Hashem also a response, a holy response. If we act in an unholy way, then it will evoke from above also a spirit of unholiness which will envelop us. So everything depends on us. That's what he says. And the same is with speech. The Zohar continues. Because there's speech in heaven also. It says Hashem created the world with His speech. So when you speak words of Torah, words of prayer, your speech touches and evokes God's speech. And it evokes, it arouses what it arouses, it evokes what it arouses. If it's a good speech, it evokes Hashem's speech. And if it's a bad speech, a negative speech, it also evokes from Hashem a negative response. The words of speech, and the truth is all speech, have the power to evoke something spiritual. We live in the physical dimension, and we speak in the physical dimension, but nevertheless the effect, the impact of our words impacts the heavens. The heavens are not godly, but they're spiritual. So our words impact the heaven and evoke a response. If we speak words, holy words, Torah and mitzvot, words of Torah, words of prayer, then those words become elevated to the world, the heavens, the world of angels. But if, however, we speak negative words, then it evokes a negative response. So that's um, proof number one. He's bringing from the Zohar proofs to this concept. Then the second quote from the Zohar. Yeah, you see it on page 561. So the first quote is that the spoken word ascends and pierces the heavens and evokes what it evokes. If the word is good, a word of Torah, the like, it evokes good. Even words without any holy intent have an effect. The second Zohar that he quotes says that when a person sleeps, goes to sleep at night, and the soul goes up to heaven, we only have a small part of the soul remains. That's why we're unconscious when we're asleep. Because the soul goes to heaven. And the soul is tested, is basically judged based on its behavior that day. 
if it spoke positive words, then those positive words will testify in heaven that the person has occupied himself with good things. So it says that when a person speaks words, these words are elevated, a word of Torah, words of prayer, these words pierce through the heavens, and it waits for the soul to come up to heaven, and then the soul takes with the word, with it, and it ascends, it sends into heaven. And it, it enters the world, word before the king. And if not, God forbid, then it, then it actually leaves a negative impression and the soul suffers. When the soul enters, that's why sometimes you have a restful sleep, and sometimes you have a restless sleep. A lot of it depends the quality of the day you had. If you had a meaningful day and an uplifted day and your day was enveloped with good words and Torah and prayer, then when your soul elevates above, your soul is elevated and your soul feels elevated and your soul is relaxed. But if your day was surrounded with negative words and negative activity, then when the soul is elevated, it actually the soul is tortured, the soul suffers. Because every word, every activity comes to testify. So... What? How do you find out the score? How do you find out the score? Well, the big score we're going to find out at 120. But I guess we find out how we wake up the next morning. We wake up refreshed, relaxed, open, inspired. You must have done something good the night before because it's how you fall asleep. That's how you wake up. If you want to set the tone how you're going to wake up, you have to set the tone how you fall asleep. Say a Shema before he goes to sleep. You think some holy words. You set the tone. There's a discipline. You go to sleep. And also how you sleep depends on how you live the previous day. What kind of day you had the previous day. If you had a deep day and you were really deeply immersed in, in holy things, your soul feels it. Those who study Torah. So after a day of deep studying in Torah, deep engagement in Torah, their soul could experience tremendous delight. In their dreams, they can clarify things in Torah that they were not clear in a conscious state. They feel like they, they've, have a, they've had a revelation of Torah. It's a wonderful time. You know, it's, you access a dream state, which is like a trance, which acts as a very deep level of, of subconsciousness, which is extremely pleasurable and rewarding and fulfilling and wholesome and inspiring. That's a restful sleep. That's an inspiring sleep. Otherwise, it's a very restless sleep because you're tortured. The soul is tortured. So again, you see from the Zohar that everything that we do goes up above. And therefore, it has an impact. So everything, the material words, actually become spiritual. So when we speak words of Torah, just the word itself, it doesn't give any other condition. You have to say these words of Torah based on love for Hashem, motivated by a love for Hashem. There's no motivation here. There's no lishma. There's no not thinking about Hashem. The words themselves are holy words. So when you speak holy words, well, automatically these words are elevated and become go to heaven. And they are transformed into something spiritual. That's also why it says why we need um, the angels to help out our prayers. Because we are physical human beings. We live in a physical dimension. When we pray, those words, the words of prayer, are elevated to the heavenly words. They become spiritual. So they become, they enter the world of the angels. And then the angels are further able to elevate it. Because ultimately, since we're physical, so we're limited how refined those words can become. So the angels further polish it and refine it and send it up to the next angel. And so the, the prayers keep on ascending from level to level, from world to world, until if, there, if it was a proper prayer and it was done with intent, with a sense of love for Hashem, the prayer enters before the Kisei HaKavit, the, before the the crown of, crown of glory before Hashem. Because the words become godly. And then they have the proper effect and impact. And then the blessings come back down. So, so words themselves are elevated and become part of the spiritual realm. So that's the second Zohar. The third Zohar, the third that he quotes, discusses Shabbos. And it says, the reason why you're not allowed to talk business in Shabbos. The Torah says not allowed to talk business in Shabbos. There's no prohibition against thinking business. Thinking. You're not allowed to talk. Of course, ideally, a person shouldn't even think business. When it comes to Shabbos, all your work should be done. It has to be a day of pleasure. 
So you, no worries, no anxieties. In your mind, it's as if everything is done. You're not thinking about business. You're completely divorced from business. That's ideal. That's a chassid. A chassid doesn't even think about business. But legally, halachically, biblically, you're not allowed to act on Shabbos. You're allowed to speak business. The prophets, the rabbis enacted, they shouldn't even speak about business on Shabbos. You can't speak. You cannot. No, can't. Can't. No speaking business on Shabbos. Yes. Unless it's, if it's shul business, yes. if it's a holy business, yes. uh, synagogue business, yes. then, yes. then it's different. To sell aliyot, to make money, to sell, that, that business is okay. But other than that, you can't talk business on Shabbos. Think. Think you're allowed to. It's not ideal. Ideally, you shouldn't. But there's no prohibition. Why? The Zohar explains. scenario? No. Yeah, that's thinking. As long as you don't speak. So Zohar explains, what's the difference between thinking and speaking? Why is thinking okay and speaking is not okay? He says, because the nature of speaking is when you speak, you make a noise. It's heard. It carries. The voice carries. And what's true in the physical is also true in the spiritual because your voice, your words are transformed into something spiritual. So if you're going to speak business on Shabbos, it will, it will, you're going to bring in business into heaven on Shabbos. You're going to disturb the peace of Shabbos, tranquility. Suddenly you're bringing into heaven, in the middle of Shabbos, business. Stock market, business, negotiations, not, no place for it. When you think, thought is quiet. No one knows what you're thinking. It doesn't travel. It doesn't carry. So vo- vo- thinking does not does not affect the heavens but when you speak just like when you speak it carries so too spiritually when you speak it pierces through the heavens and it's carried very far so you see clearly when a person speaks every word that you speak pierces through the heavens becomes something spiritual so if you're going to speak something positive you're going to transform it into something into something a holy holy world something positive energy if you speak something negative you're going to turn it into some negative energy but you see clearly that a person, even without any godly motivation, has the ability and has, has the effect of being elevated into the spiritual realm, into, which is a holy realm, the, the realm of angels, if he speaks words of Torah and prayer. So when a Jew speaks holy words in Shabbos, you evoke from heaven also a holy response. And then the person is enveloped with holiness. But if a person speaks business in Shabbos, secular, mundane, and you evoke also a negative response. And then he quotes the fourth Zohar that he quotes. And this is the end of the note. Zohar writes, it says that certain sounds that are so powerful, you can hear it from one end of the world to the other. We can't hear it because we're not tuned in. It says when, they, when the soul leaves the body, it's a sound, an earth-shattering sound. The sound of the soul leaving the body is so earth-shattering that it reverberates from one end of the world to the other. We don't hear it because we're not tuned in. But there is such a sound, it's such an earth-shattering sound. The soul leaving the body is so traumatic that the soul is heard from one end of the world to the other. It also says when the snake, when the snake sheds its skin, there's an earth-shattering sound. Um, it says when an animal gives birth, it's so painful that it, it is an earth-shattering sound from one end of the world to the other. The Zohar says that these voices, these sounds are never lost. But is they don't... Speak? No, it's all in the same note. There's no, he just quotes from end each... No, yeah, we didn't get to the other note. This is just the third. He just, he just quotes like two words from each. Yes. Different, he's mentioning four places in the Zohar. The Zohar discusses the concept. These voices remain flat, remain in this world. They're heard from one end of the world to the other, but they remain in this world. Versus when you say voices of Torah, when you speak voices of Torah, the voices go to heaven. They leave this world. They're elevated to the world of angels. So the word themselves, when the words themselves are Torah words and prayer words, the holy words, the words themselves are elevated. What do we see from all these four, four quotes of the Zohar? That through, through Torah and through prayer, the Torah and prayer are elevated to the holy world, the holy realm of angels. But it's not godly. Spirituality, let's not confuse spirituality with godliness. Yes, it's populated by holy beings, by angels. But angels are not God. They're holy, they're spiritual, but they're not godly. They're conscious beings. Thanks, God. Huh? Thanks, God. Yeah. Thank, thank God. 
They're conscious beings, but they're separate, so they're separate from God. They obey God, they worship God, they're, they're good. They're holy angels. They represent sometimes. They represent, they're agents. They're, 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 they're postal, uh, postal workers, delivery boys. What's it called? The, uh, messengers, yes. messenger service. Yes. They, what? Right. Non union. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly, the angel transmitted the message. Right, so they are messengers. A malach literally means a messenger. A messenger. That's what they are, messengers. Messengers to work both ways. They're messengers from us. They carry our prayers yes. up. And it works both ways. They carry God's answer, response down here. So they are, they're, they're messengers. Not God forbid intermediaries. They're just like the messenger. The messenger is just the messenger. He doesn't do anything. He just shuttles back and forth. He just, he's just a messenger. That's all he is. It's only one function. He, he, he gives a message one, and finish. One function at a time. Yes. <laughs> An angel can't do more than one thing at a time. That's what's unique about a human being. We are unique. We can do many things at one time. We can tie our shoes and true gum at the same time. An angel can't do two things at a time. Whatever he does, he's right now I'm busy with this message. When he has this message, he can't. It's one dimensional. When he's done with this, this message, with this mission, then he can go on to another mission. But angels are one dimensional. A human being is multidimensional, simultaneously. That's, that's why he was so unique. That's why when the angels first saw Adam, they bowed down. They thought he was God. They'd never seen anything like it. There's no such creature in the whole universe who could be so multidimensional and full, full kaleidoscope of emotions and intellect and material and spiritual and the full kaleidoscope of emotions, one extreme to the other, love and, and strength and compassion. It's all in the, within the same person. They've never seen anything like it. But an angel is a messenger. So that's, that's the, where the Torah mitzvah that you study is elevated to the world of, of the spiritual and holy realm, but not into the godly realm. It's only when you're motivated. With, you're motivated to study Torah by a love of Hashem, by a conscious love of Hashem. Then the Torah that you study and the prayer that you pray soar. They soar to godliness. They become godly. They become absorbed and one with the ten spherot. Either the world of creation, depending on what level of motivation you have, how deep your love for Hashem is, how profound your love for Hashem is, or the world of formation, it's a natural love, or if it's just the consciousness of I'm a servant of God and I'm a soldier and I'm, I'm disciplined and I'm obedient and I have to obey God, then it's the ten svirot of the world of action. But either way, they become part of the ten svirot. You've touched something godly. They've touched something godly. But otherwise, other than that, this Torah is only elevated to the external world, the realm of the angels. But what if a Jew studies Torah with a negative motivation? You're motivated by ego, you want to show off, you want respect, you want to become famous, you want power, it's a career. It's nothing to do with godliness, it's about me. Me, myself, and I. In that case, the Torah is flat. It doesn't even, it's not even elevated, it doesn't leave this world. It's not even elevated to the world of the angels. And this is the deeper meaning what the Talmud says. The Talmud says, in the Talmudic tractate of Psachim, it says that fortunate is the person who comes to heaven with his learning, with his studying in his hands. What does it mean, comes to heaven? Literal meaning is that he studied Torah. He has something to show. That he spent, he's, he's, he spent his time in this world well spent. He studied Torah as so he comes to heaven with Torah because in paradise... Paradise is a reward. It's like Shabbat. If you don't cook before Shabbos, you're going to starve on Shabbos. <laughs> you come unprepared. It's, like, it's too late. You can't cook on Shabbos. Everything has to be done before. Once the soul comes to paradise, it's too late. You can't do anything. You, the marketplace is now. Now is the time you can acquire, make acquisitions. You can acquire knowledge. You can do Torah. You can do mitzvot. You can do kindness. You can... It's only in this world. So one comes prepared. The more Torah you study in this world, and even though the Torah that we study in this world is very external, the body of the Torah, the legal laws of the Torah, surely in heaven they're not studying about a cow and an ox. In heaven it's a, they study the Torah on a, on a spiritual dimension. But whoever comes to heaven prepared with all the Torah knowledge that he studied, then he'll have the benefit and the pleasure of studying that same Torah that he already acquired and that he learned, that he knows. Now he can study the Torah in a whole different dimension, a whole different level. 
which gives him infinite pleasure. Is this the same Torah? Yeah, the same Torah that you're learning, but in a different dimension. It's a spiritual dimension. And it gives you infinite pleasure. Because understanding the Torah on that level, where everything talks about spirituality and it's all a different, it gives you a tremendous pleasure. So that's the literal meaning of the Talmud. The Rebbe here says a deeper explanation. But the Talmud means that fortunate is the person who comes to heaven and he has, possesses his Talmud in his hands. He packed his bags, he has his Talmud, meaning that it's possible you can come to heaven and you study Talmud, but it's not in your hands. You leave it behind. How can you leave all the Torah that you studied? You studied for decades. You spend 18 hours a day studying, and yet you leave all the Torah behind. How is that possible? If you study, if you study Torah with egotistical motivation, because you want to become great, you want to become famous, it's a career, power, fame, whatever motivation you may have, or even to the world to come. You want to study Torah in order to get a, a, an eternal reward. See, you, you didn't want to think about God. You spent your whole life studying Torah, and you, you didn't want to think about God. It's not about God, it's about me, my ego. I want to become perfect. I want to become a perfect person. I want to get an eternal reward. It, it's greed. So one person is greedy for money. You're greedy for, for the world to come. What's the difference? It's all ego. You have, it's not about God. You don't love God. You're not even thinking about God. You have no relationship to God. So the Torah that you studied remains behind. Your soul has left the body. Tough luck. You left this world. Your soul goes to heaven. Whether you're ready or not, whether you like it or not, your soul goes to heaven. But your Torah remains stuck in this world. So the Talmud says, fortunate is the Jew who comes to heaven and his Torah is in his hands. In Tozan. And his, and his Torah is in his hands, meaning he has, he has the Torah, he brings the Torah with him. Why? Because he studied the Torah with a proper motivation, with a love for Hashem. That's why he studied Torah. That's why he spent 18 hours a day studying Torah. It was out of his love for Hashem, he wanted to become intimate with Hashem. He wanted to connect with Hashem. And the best way for a Jew to become intimate with Hashem is through Torah. There's nothing like Torah. It's unparalleled. And that's what motivated him. That's what excited him about studying Torah. So when a Jew injects in his Torah study a godly motivation, then the Torah is elevated. Then when he goes to heaven, he takes the Torah with him. And then he gets the reward, the just reward, that all the Torah that he studied, now he understands it on a godly level. And it gives him infinite pleasure. All the pleasures in this world and all the spiritual pleasures can't compare to one moment of godly pleasure. As Alter Rebbe when once said, about Torah, what does he any, any Torah, any. any portion of Torah, it doesn't matter. Talmud, I mean, Sefer Torah. Sefer Torah, the written Torah, the oral Torah, the Talmud, the law, any portion of the Torah. This is, Torah. This is the divine wisdom, it's the holy, the holy Torah. And now everyone said there are souls who are in the Garden of Eden for hundreds of years and they have no idea about godliness. <laughs> it's sad. But you create your own reality. They tell a story, there was once a wagon driver who was taking a whole group of very special people, a whole group of Hasidim was taking them. They were traveling to the Rebbe. And the horse lost control. And they were going downhill. And they were all going to die. They were all going to crash, fall off the mountain. And he somehow, with his last strength, he held the horses back and he saved the lives. He had all these great Hasidim, great rabbis. He saved their life. You know, imagine you saved one soul. You saved the whole world. Imagine he saved all these lives. After 120 years, he comes to the heavenly court. Okay. He's, he's being judged. So are you kidding? They, they couldn't say it. There was not, nothing negative to say about him because whatever negative paled in comparison to the great deed that he did in his life. He single-handedly saved not one life, not two lives, not three lives and what illustrious rabbis and holy people. And because of them, they were able to live and, and continue for years to come to serve as Hashem. His place in the world to come was already guaranteed. But they thought to themselves, what kind of reward can we give we're going to send him to the yeshiva above. He'll be bored to, bored to death. He never studied Torah in his life. He doesn't know what studying Torah is all about. He'll be bored. It's not going to be a reward for him. So what kind of reward could they give him? So the reward they gave him was <laughs> that he imagined. They put him in an imaginary world. And they gave him the best horse. And the best wagon. And the best reins. 
and unbelievable roads. And all day he's sitting and riding with horses. He's whipping the horses and he's riding from one end of the world to the other and he's the happiest person in the world. He's the best wagon driver that there is. He's so excited. That's, that's in his mind. That's the limit of his awareness. He doesn't know of anything else. He doesn't appreciate anything else. He didn't learn. He didn't acquire anything else. So if that's, all, if that's the limitation, that's all you can think of, then you, know, you create your own trap. You create your own box. Then you, you can't get out of that box. So a person whose whole life is me, myself, and I, his whole life begins with my, myself and then ends with myself. I am the beginning, middle, and end of everything. I don't once think about godliness. And don't be, don't, be, don't be fooled by the cover. A person can look very religious and very pious, and yet it's pure ego. The entire motivation is purely selfish, egotistical. I'm not thinking about God. I couldn't care less about God. It's about me. I want to feel comfortable. I want to feel smart. I want to feel clever. I want to feel you know, a leader. I want to be ahead. I want to be respected. I want to, I want to get a share in the world to come. Nobel Prize. What? Whatever it is. Whatever it is. It's all about myself. So when you create that reality, so yes, after 120 years, you can't punish such a person because, listen, he spent all his life doing good. He studied Torah and did mitzvot. He did everything that's right. By law, he did everything that's right. But he can be in the Garden of Eden for hundreds of years and doesn't even know about godliness. His whole existence is that he, oh, he's luxurious. He's, you know, the paradise that they give him is nebuch, is, is based on his, uh, his limited awareness and his childish, infantile, childish understanding of what reward is, of what life is all about. So yeah, so it's like, okay, you want to have your toy, we'll give you a toy. That's, that's it, it's, it's a toy, it's not, it's not the real thing. And that's the tragedy. When a person is so unaware, you're so not aware of yourself, you don't even know there's a problem. You think, like the wagon driver, he, he, was in, he was in heaven. He was in horse heaven. Couldn't think of anything better. He was the happiest person in the world. He didn't even know that he's lacking. He's so unaware of himself, he didn't, didn't even know that there's a problem. So a person whose whole life is me, myself, and I, and his whole world that he constructs, his whole psychological world that he constructs around himself, is ego to become perfect, to I should become perfect, and I should become a better person, I should become a bigger person, and I, 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 and ad nauseum. So fine, so he's, getting, he's given a reward that's, he's trapped in his own little illusion. And that's his, that's his Garden of Eden, Achimvei, Nebuch. That's his Garden of Eden. He doesn't even know about Gavis. Versus a Jew who studies Torah, and his motivation is not I, his motivation is Godliness. He's motivated by godliness. He has a feeling for godliness. He has a connection to godliness. Then, when he studies Torah, his Torah is elevated, becomes godly, and his soul also soars together with the Torah. And after 120 years, all that Torah he takes with him. And his soul is elevated to godliness and receives the reward, the just reward, the pleasure. There's eternal reward, the just reward of all the pleasure of all the Torah that he studied an illumination of that Torah, the soul benefits and basks in the light and the godly illumination and the ecstasy and the pleasure that he, from all that Torah study, which now he understands and comprehends um, its godly dimension. So basically everybody has their own heaven, own, own level of heaven. Yes, yeah, in a certain sense, you create your own reality. It says, King David says, God is your shadow. God is interactive. You create your own reality, just like a shadow. Whatever you input, God is interactive. It's exactly what you get back. Like we just read from the Zohar. You put holiness in, holiness responds back. You put something negative in, you get something negative. The Zohar says, you frown, and God frowns. You're joyful, you smile, and God smiles. You're kind and generous, God is kind and generous to you. God is interactive. You are in the driver's seat. You create your own reality. Yes, you create your own reality. This is a very uh, fundamental idea in Judaism. That whatever the Jewish court decides, they create the reality. The Jewish court decides that today is Rosh Chodesh. Even though they err, they make a mistake in their astronomical calculations, it becomes Rosh Chodesh. God put us in the driver's seat. We are creators. You create 
your reality. Therefore, it depends on the level. So a person is not so dependent, the person is really independent. You are really in the driver's seat. This puts you a tremendous responsibility in your lap. You can't play victim, you can't blame, you can't, well, it's my, my fault, society's fault. You can, you can go through life. Also, you can create your own reality. You can go through life playing a victim. It's not my fault, there's nothing I can do about it. And you know what? In the court of law, you'll get away with it. But at the end of the day, you created your own reality. You're not a victim of anything. If you chose, if you decide to do something to change, you can change. Nothing in the world stopping. This is a fundamental belief. And we, we, all, we all experience it. When you want to find an excuse for something, you're not in the mood for something, suddenly the perfect excuse will come up. It's amazing. And it's a good excuse. It's a genuine excuse. It's, it's, it's foolproof. But only because you wanted the excuse, that's why the excuse happened. It fell in your lap. Perfect time. What if you're not interested in an excuse? You want to get something done. All of a sudden, your whole reality changes. All of a sudden, there's no excuses. All of a sudden, you, I'm able to do it. Suddenly, you find yourself in a position you're able to do it. Things are moving. Things are changing. If you really want something, it happens. You really, really want something very badly. It happens. You'll make it happen. But, but you know, you don't want it. But you play victim. So a person can go through his entire life playing victim. It's 120 years. Okay, listen, it wasn't my fault. There's nothing I can do. But that's delusion. You can go through your whole life now. So it depends what position you take in life. You create your reality. And God, God, will, God will respond to you. It's like there's a very poignant story. The Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe. One of his Hasidim, one of his great Hasidim, his daughter was not happily married. She was not in love with her husband. Whatever it was, she was not happily married. She wanted to divorce her husband. She tells her father, next time you go to Lubavitch, ask the Rebbe. Ask him what he thinks. So the father, like a good chassid, went to the Rebbe and he explained to him the situation. The Rebbe says, my advice to your daughter is she should not get divorced. Not get, not get divorced. Anyway, he comes back. He says, this, this is what the Rebbe said. Okay. So she respected it and she tolerated another, another year. Another year went by and she turns to the father, listen, I can't live like this. Go tell the Rebbe that I must get a divorce. So again, the father goes back, tells the Tzemotzedek, my daughter says she can't, she followed your advice and it's not working out. The daughter says, tell your daughter she should not get divorced. Anyway, she comes, the father comes back home, tells the Rebbe. The daughter says, listen, if the Rebbe wants to live with my husband, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> but I can't live with my husband. I simply can't. And she went, she went to the rabbi and she insisted on in getting a divorce. Anyway, fine. She remarries. She got, yeah, she got this. She went to the rabbi. And got a, yeah, yeah. You know, she insisted, oh, listen, we can't live together. The husband agreed and he got a divorce. Fine. She remarries. She's getting older in years. And she can't have children. She went to the best doctors. She can't have children. So she tells her father, Father, do me a favor. Next time you go to Lubavitch, go into the Rebbe and ask the Rebbe for a blessing, for a bracha. Should I have a child? father goes into the Rebbe and the Rebbe throws up his arms and says what do you want me to do I told her she should stay married in other words the Rebbe wasn't like oh you didn't listen to me so I'm not giving you a blessing the Rebbe was saying is you create your own reality if you would have had faith in something greater than yourself even though you don't understand it but you have faith in the tzaddik. You have faith in the power of the tzaddik to give a blessing, to intercede with Hashem, and to bring, bring down blessings to your life. So then, you trust me, that I see that your souls are connected, and that with your husband, you can get a child. And that would make you happy. And that would make up for all, any, anything negative. But you did, didn't trust 
you operated on your human, rational, logical mind, which is fine, that's fine. A person has freedom of choice, you can do as you please. But if you're operating on a rational level, don't come, you can't, I can't help you. Even God can't help. Because you, you've straightjacketed yourself. You can't have it both ways. Either you're connecting to a higher, something greater than yourself, a different dimension, and even if you don't understand it, you go with it, and then things work out. But if you don't, if you're only going to work in a way that makes sense to me, if it makes sense to me, good, and if not, I'm out of here. So fine, on, on that dimension, you can't have a child. There's nothing I can do. Because logically and rationally, you cannot have a child. All the doctors told you that. There's nothing I can do to help you. You can't. I'm not a magician. You can't have a child. But if you would have plugged in and connected to a different dimension, you would have had the faith, the faith in the tzaddik, the faith in the Rebbe. You think I told you to stay married because I want you to be miserable? Because the Rebbe sees things on a different level. What's good for you? You don't accept it. Okay. Well, you lie in the bed that you, that you, that you set. That's the bed that you lie in. That's the bed that you... That's, I can't help you. I can cry with you. I can empathize with you. But I can't help you. I can't work in that other dimension because you're not there. You decided to live in a different dimension. I can't help you. So you create your own reality in certain sense. When a Jew has trust in Hashem, when you have faith in Hashem and trust in Hashem, you create a new reality which enables the good thing to happen, the miracle to happen, the breakthrough to happen. If you don't have trust in Hashem, you work in a purely rational, logical way. And what's the proof that you don't have trust in Hashem? That you're nervous and you're anxious. You can't kid yourself. You can't say, I trust in Hashem. And meanwhile, you can't sleep at night. And meanwhile, your whole kishkas are turning upside down. That's not called trust in Hashem. Trust in Hashem means you're calm. You sleep like a baby. You're calm. You have trust in Hashem. Everything will turn out right. You know if it's real or not. And Hashem surely knows if it's real or not. When you live in that dimension, that you truly have trust in Hashem, you create a whole new reality. You're plugging into a whole different dimension of reality. Then a, whole, then a whole new reality opens up. And even if you feel checkmated, and even if a sword is at your throat, the Talmud says, if you have genuine trust in Hashem, anything can happen. All the bets are off. Anything can happen. The impossible can happen. But if you don't, if you operate on a purely rational, logical basis, then even God can help you. I mean, there's nothing I can do. I mean, what? This, these are the rules. These are the laws. This is the world that you live in. And, you know, you live in this box. I can't help you. You, have, you yourself have to. You're in the driver's seat. So this changes our whole perspective. It really puts us in the driver's seat. And it tells us at the responsibility that we have. What a, what a responsibility that we have. To, that we are really in charge. That we are really in control. That we are really responsible. What an what a awesome responsibility and also privilege gives us. So we are in charge and we are responsible not only for our actions, but also for the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Because if you really wanted something, things would open, things would change. But most people don't want to live that way. Most people like to feel victimized, feel safe. I don't have to take responsibility. Most people allow life to happen to them. They don't take the bull by the horn and things happen. Circumstances happen and I deal with things as they happen. But I don't really take charge and change things. But as Maimonides says, this is the foundation of Judaism to believe that we have freedom of choice. And what that means on the deepest level is that you are in charge. You are in control. You can change things. You're not a victim. And that's why the Torah says there's reward and punishment. Otherwise, there's no meaning to reward and punishment. We're just victims of nature, of nurture, of environment, of circumstances. We can't be blamed for anything, and there's no meaning, there's no reward, because you have no choice. The person who does good has no choice, and the person who does evil has no choice. But Judaism says, no, the foundation of Judaism is that we have freedom of choice. We have free agents. And quantum mechanics corroborates that. It's unpredictable. Quantum mechanics is unpredictable. I don't know what's going to happen next. So this goes against the whole... Um, what? Yeah that, yeah, that a person is stuck or that a person is... Um, you know, a person basically does not have freedom of choice. A person 
you can always be full of surprises. You can always change. You can act in ways that are unpredictable. And uh, so the Torah really believes in us. The Torah really believes in our consciousness. This is where the soul comes in. If you really believe that a person has a soul, and the, the, modernist, the modernist doesn't really believe in the soul. That's why they can't really believe that a person has freedom of choice. If you don't really believe in the soul, if you don't believe in the godliness of your soul, that you have a godly soul, that you have a consciousness, you don't really have a choice. How could you have a choice? You're, you're, you're just a victim. You're underneath layers upon layers upon layers of, of... You're just a victim to circumstances that are so beyond you, beyond your control. You can't really... We think we're free, but really we're not free. Einstein didn't believe in freedom of choice. But this is the foundation of Judaism. If you really believe in God, then you really believe that our soul has a piece of God. We have a consciousness. And if we have a piece of God inside of us, then we are truly free. Then we're not victims. We're creators. We create reality. We create our own reality. So yes, you, that's what Alter Rebbe says. You can have a soul who's in heaven for hundreds of years. And in his mind, he's in heaven. He's in bliss, in ecstasy. Not in hell, in heaven. But nebuch, to this heaven. Nebuch. He doesn't even know about God. doesn't know anything about godliness. Never tasted anything godly in his life. That's a tragedy. But it's a self-fulfilling tragedy. Depending on the type of life that you live. And that's what the Talmud means. That fortunate is the person who comes to heaven and his Talmud, he brings his Talmud with him, he brings his Torah study with him. Because then he'll become godly. Then his soul becomes godly. And then he enters into the true paradise. And his soul derives infinite pleasure and ecstasy from the glimmer and the ray of the Torah that he studied. All that pleasure of godliness that now he appreciates and he absorbs and he learns and grows from level to level, from strength to strength, three times a day, every day. And, and it's, a, it's an endless pleasure and endless new insights and new breakthroughs and new understanding and new revelations of godliness. And it's ad infinitum. But otherwise, we just we remain trapped in our, our level. Does it mean that a believer cannot be both? No, the Torah, does, the Torah does allow for divorce. Sometimes you have no choice. Sometimes divorce is a tragedy. Divorce is an amputation. Because something real happens. When you give that divorce, when you go through that halachic divorce, it's like taking two souls that stood together under the chuppah, that were united under the chuppah, and like ampu- amputating Cutting it off, slicing it, it hurts, it's painful. It's taking a living organism and slicing it. But sometimes you have no choice. Sometimes you have to amputate. Let's say a person gets gangrene. If you're going to leave the foot, it's going to poison the whole body. Sometimes when the relationship is so poisonous, marriage is supposed to be pleasure. God didn't give us marriage to be miserable. Marriage is supposed to be pleasure. Supposed to enjoy each other's company, supposed to. Um, and the whole idea is a man should not be alone. You should feel that you have a companion in life and feel that you're, you have a partner in life and feel you're together. You give each other pleasure on all dimensions physical and spiritual and emotional. Marriage just has to be happy. Yeah, people doesn't want to give to people to marry, to get there for 100 years. In the meantime, the situation is changing and they might be a real, real situation. Well, the, the, the tragedy of divorce is because since they stood under the chuppah, obviously there was Shared. potential. It's bashert, and there is potential. Yes. The, the, the two souls are one, and, yes. and there is potential. Now, unfortunately, that's the tragedy of life. Many times, potential is not realized. Yes. And even people who are married, they're happily married. Some people take 1% out of marriage. Some people take 5% out of marriage. It's rare to find a marriage which people, they're 100%, taking 100%. 
you know, they're, they're like really into each other and really thrive on each other and really growing from each other and growing together. It's, it's a delight to see when you see it. It's very rare to see like, like two people so connected and so together and so in every dimension. This is the idea of this. That's the ideal. But the truth is every marriage, when they stood under the chuppah, means that they have that potential. Yes. Otherwise, they wouldn't stand under the chuppah. So it's up to us again. Yes. We're talking about victim. You can play victim and say, oh, it's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's society's fault. It's... You can find a million one excuses, but really you're in the driver's seat. It's really up to you. You can change. It's not about the spouse. 99% of human misery has nothing to do with the other person. And the proof is in the pudding. Firstly, by the time you divorced five times already, <laughs> maybe it is me. Maybe, it's, maybe it's, not, it's not my spouse. Maybe it is me. But we, it, it, it is a simple test. When we, you're in a great mood, the world is wonderful. You notice? Everything is wonderful. Even the worst enemy, you find, find something good to say about it. You're in a horrible mood, your best friend is not good enough. You find something negative to say. What happened? Nothing changed. The world hasn't changed. You change. It's all about you. It has nothing to do with the other person. When your life is together and you feel that your life is moving and you feel wholesome and you feel connected and you feel you've worked out your own issues. Everyone has issues. You've dealt with your issues. You've overcome your issues. You've truly grown. You know what truly grows? People sometimes have to hit rock bottom before they truly grow. The, the, the recovering alcoholic who hit rock bottom, the 20 million Americans who hit rock bottom and now became recovering alcoholics, they had to do hard work. They had to really confront themselves, maybe for the first time in their life, really grow up, really mature, really change. You know, that's genuine change. But how many of us go through that change? We don't. We, we coast through life. We don't deal with issues. We don't like to deal with issues. We like to avoid issues. The more real the issue is, the more we like to avoid it. We run away. Anyone that touches it, it's like, it's like too painful. So we just run and hide. So we don't deal with anything real in our lives. We don't talk about anything real in our lives. And we coast along. You can, get, you can put yourself in a situation where no one is criticizing you and no one is telling you any honest feedback. And, and it's fine. You can live your whole life that way. Most people live their lives that way. But, but what did you gain? I mean, you know, again, you create your own reality. You created a comfortable reality. No one is going to challenge you. No one's going to tell you like it is. You're going to remain the same emotional child that you always were. You're never going to grow up. You're never going to mature. You're never going to become wise. So, I mean, so fine. There's no real change. The recovering alcoholic had no choice because he hit rock bottom and he was about to lose everything, his life and his spouse and his family and his business. That He can't deny it anymore. He reached rock bottom. He has to deal with it. So he does the painful work. It's hard work, but he does it. And you know what? you see people who go through it and then they come out much stronger and richer and deeper because they dealt with something real in their life. But most of us avoid dealing with reality and, therefore, and we feel very comfortable. It's too uncomfortable. So we, we just avoid it. And, and we avoid anyone who's going to challenge us, anyone who's going to point out the truth and hold the mirror to our face. And we can go through life that way. You know, people are pleasant. No, no one's going to, no one's going to, no one, if you don't want it, no one's going to give you honest feedback if you don't welcome it, if you don't want it. So you can go through life and everything is superficial. That about describes 90% of us. The whole life is one superficial. So it's up to you. What are you going to get out of the marriage? It's, you are soulmates. And there is love there. And there is potential. There's a reason you got together. But what you're going to gain out of it, that's, totally up to you it's not your spouse no one can do it for you it's totally up to you if you put into it no deposit no return the more you put into it the more you'll get out of it it's symmetrical in both of both cases you know you can only you can only work on yourself the spouse has to do the spouse's work but you you can do your work maybe you can inspire if you change Maybe you evoke a change in the other person. But that's, that's their responsibility. It's not your responsibility. We can't change anyone else. The only one in the world that we can change is ourselves. And that's the one person we don't change. <laughs> we love to change everyone else. We tell the president what to do. We tell the prime minister what to do. We have advice for everyone under the sun. Everyone should change. Me? Not this year, not next year, not anytime soon. And that's the only one we could change, is ourselves. 
And that's the one person we, we no, I'm, not, I'm not ready to change. So you create your own reality. This is the Kabbalah, right? This is the whole idea of the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah, the Kabbalah is not just learning some magical... Uh, Kabbalah is learning to be honest, learning to go deeper, learning, learning to, honest. to be honest with yourself, learning to go deeper, to go to discover the truth that you are in charge. It's an earth-shattering discovery because it strips away all false comforts and all false uh, defenses. Victimization. Right, victimization. Uh, you know, it makes you very naked. You're very, this is reality. Kabbalah is real. Like, like the, the metaphysicist goes deep into reality. The Kabbalist goes very deep into reality. He wants to know the truth. He doesn't want to hide or pretend or... He wants to know the truth. And, you know... So, obviously, the deeper you go, the more rewarding it is. The richer it is. The more you get out of it. So you create your own reality. And the same thing is with heaven. If you come to heaven and your entire motivation was ego, then your Talmud remains behind. It's not godly. And your whole Garden of Eden is very limited. But if you come... Fortunate is the person who comes to heaven with all his Talmud in his hands. Because he was motivated by godliness. And therefore he's elevated into a godly world, a godly place. And the pleasure that he gets is godly pleasure. So, so yes, you create your own reality. Not only in this world, but also in the next world. So, Aiden is not heaven. It's where the good people go, but it's not. They didn't bring their Torah. Well, heaven, heaven is not godly. Let's not confuse heaven. That's what he's saying here. Heaven is not godly. If a Jew studies Torah without any godly motivation, without any ego motivation, but without any godly motivation, the Torah elevates, is elevated to heaven, the world of the angels, which are holy, a holy world, but it's not godly. They don't become godly. It's only when you study Torah with a divine motivation that you touch the divine. When you touch the divine, then sparks start flying. Then your Torah becomes godly. And you're elevated into a godly place. And your experience in paradise is, 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 is a different experience. It's a godly experience. I mean, listen, only the Alter Rebbe can make such a statement that, that you can, a soul could be in the Garden of Eden for hundreds of years and not know about godliness. <laughs> what a powerful statement. Be completely clueless. You can be in the Garden of Eden and be completely clueless. Like the horse, yeah, the horse. As the, as the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe once said, he says, a Jew who studies the Talmud. Talmud discusses. He says, a person exchanges an axe with a donkey. There's a whole legal discussion in the Talmud. So if a person thinks that that's the extent of the Mishnah, and we don't know when it gave birth, if it gave birth before they made the exchange or after they gave the exchange, so who does the, who does the offshoot, who does the, the young capital belong to, if a person studies Mishnah and he thinks that that's the extent of the meaning of the Mishnah, there's no deeper dimension, there's no spiritual dimension, there's no godly dimension. An axe means something else, God, uh, means something in a godly dimension and, and a donkey and, and the exchange and the doubt. A person who studies Torah and thinks that Torah is just legalese and, and physical, then he is the axe and he is the donkey. <laughs> he and no other. And you can exchange the donkey for the axe, and it's all the same. <laughs> a person who studies Torah and doesn't even believe, never studies Hasidut, doesn't even believe that there's a godly dimension to the Torah, that there's a deeper dimension to the Torah. And there's the way the Torah is studied in heaven. And the way the Torah was, it says the Torah was God's plaything before he created the world. So God played with the Torah. This is God's... God, when you study Torah, this is what God does. This is what occupies God. God is occupied. His mind is, so to speak, is occupied with Torah. So you think God is thinking about a donkey and, a, and, a, and an axe? That's what engages and occupies God's mind. The donkey and the axe is a symptom, a projection of a godly dimension, whatever it means, Kabbalistically, whatever it means, in a deeper dimension. And whoever has the... I think it was the... Sam Seifer who said, he says, whoever the nigla, in the revealed way, does not believe in this, doesn't believe in the secrets of the Torah and the Kabbalah of the Torah, then benister secretly, he doesn't believe the nigla, he doesn't even believe in the Torah at all. He ultimately doesn't really believe in God. 
There's a whole Kabbalistic work based on the code of Jewish law. And it takes every law in the code of Jewish law and explains what it means Kabbalistically, what it means in the higher realms, in the, in the divine sphere, in the divine sphere. So even though for us it's fantastic, we can't, we can't even imagine. But anyone who doesn't believe that the Torah, as the Shalah HaKadosh says, Rabbi Shaya Levi Horowitz, he says that the Torah hints at the material world. But the Torah speaks of the spiritual dimension, the godly dimension. And all the physical is just merely the physical, the symptom. Then if you don't believe that, then really, ultimately, you don't really believe in God either. Secretly, you don't really believe in God. You don't believe in the 13 principles of faith either. So when, when a Jew knows, when you study a piece of Talmud, you're studying legally, studying in depth, the laws of someone exchanges, the ox with the donkey, and, but you believe and you know that every halacha in the Torah, every passage in the Torah has a parallel spiritual dimension, godly dimension. And you know that after 120 years, your soul will be studying the Torah with that godly dimension. That lights a fire. Suddenly the Torah is divine. It's holy. I'm not just a lawyer studying a clever argument and I can prove how brilliant though I am and I'm going to argue with Rashi and with Taisvahs. You're studying something divine. You're studying something godly, something godly, with reverence, with awe. And you approach the Torah with humility because you're studying the words of God, God's mind, the truth. And therefore you're going to get to the truth at the bottom and you're going to treat every word of Rashi with such awe and respect, every word of the Rishonim, of the holy early rabbis with, with reverence and with respect. If I don't understand it, you approach it with humility. Pray to God, you should open your eyes, you should understand the depth of, 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 of what Rashi is saying. Not to dismiss it so arrogantly, Rashi says this, and I say this. You know, it's, 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 there's, there's, a whole, there's such a disconnect, you know, such an arrogance and ego. When your Torah becomes so arrogant and so enveloped in ego, it's, you just become so, so disconnected. So you, you create your own reality. You really create your own reality. You're not a victim. You're in the driver's seat in every area in life. And this is a... Not many people live up to it. It's a, it's a very hard realization. It's not, it's not you know, it's maybe we would rather... Maybe ignorance is bliss. <laughs> maybe it's better to live like most people, you know. Just coast along. I'm just a victim. I'm not responsible. There's nothing I can do. It's not my fault. Because if you had to take responsibility for everything that you did and everything you said and everything that you thought, wow, if you have a consciousness and you have a divine spark and you have a genuine soul and really it's you and God, there's nothing else. The whole universe melts away and dissolves. You and God and you're in charge, you're in control, you're in the driver's seat and you can change and you can... Suddenly that, 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 that challenges me. That wakes me up. That's what freedom of choice is. That's a real choice. And there are very few people who choose to live that way. But you have that choice. You can tap into that nuclear energy that we all have inside of us, that godly energy, and we can live on a, on a quantum level and make a quantum leap in our lives, in every area of your life. And things can change, even things that you think are impossible to change, areas that you think are impossible to change. I'll never change. The more I change, the more I stay the same. I've been going nowhere for decades. And suddenly you could change. You could. And there are people who have hit rock bottom and have changed. Change is possible. And it's only when you change that you become real. Yes. As we learned in the Tanya, in the 15th chapter earlier, if you don't change, if you're not changing your nature, if you're not overcoming any difficulty, if you're not real, then, then it's superficial. Your whole life is skin deep. Your whole connection to God is skin deep. So, it's just like you have no marriage with God, because it's skin deep. So, so, so your own marriage is also skin deep. It's, it's, it goes parallel. If we have a real marriage with God, and it's more than skin deep, and we're really changing, God is challenging us, and God is, awakens us, something within us, awakens this godly spark inside of us, and we're awake, and we're growing, and we're moving, and we're changing, and we're alive, then your marriage will also be awake, and vibrant, and alive, and will be genuine. But if our relationship to God is skin deep, so everything in life is skin deep. So our relationship is also dead and skin deep and half asleep. And, uh, you know, 
Like he says here, you create your reality. You want, you, you want, you want a marriage. You want a relationship. So this is exactly the point that we're discussing in these chapters. The marriage is an objective fact. The two souls stood together at the chuppah. You're connected. You like it or not. You want it or not. It's there. It's a reality. Fine. It's an objective fact. Nothing to do with personal subjective. Before you were even born, it was already decided. Yes. Before you were even born. It's not your personal conscious choice. It precedes you. It's, it's a reality. It's an objective reality. Just like you said, when you do Torah, you do mitzvah, it's an objective reality. You have motivation. You don't have motivation. You do it properly. The intent is secondary. The bottom line is you've done the mitzvah. It's an objective fact. It's, you've done something divine. But is that the type of marriage you want to have? You can have a marriage. You're technically married, but it's dead. It's soulless. There's no passion. There's no love. There's no depth. There's no connection. It's not rewarding. It's a, it becomes a burden. It becomes actually, it could, could become even painful. It could become even painful. But that depends on you. If you develop yourself, the more you develop yourself spiritually, the more you develop yourself as a person, your mind, your heart, the more you put into the marriage, then the marriage becomes illuminated, becomes wonderful, life-sustaining, life-altering, life-giving. It adds years to your life. It becomes rewarding and rich and colorful. That's what God wanted. We're married to God. Whether we feel it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, whether we know it, you do the mitzvah, so a Jew does the mitzvah. But it's a marriage. That's what the Talmud says. If you do a mitzvah without the proper motivation, it's like a body without a soul. Is that what God wanted? That you should do it so cold-bloodedly, so mechanically, so superficially? It's a marriage. God wants 100% out of this marriage. Where's the love? Where's the, the, the closeness, the intimacy, the, the, the connection, the color, the richness, the, 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 the mutual feeding each other, nourishing each other, strengthening each other? And, and, and That depends on you, your personal subjective self. What are you going to put into this marriage? What are you going to put into this relationship? That all depends on us. It's going to be an illuminated Marriage, passionate marriage, exciting marriage, or it's done, it's a reality. You get married, you have children, you have a family, it's a reality, it's there, it's done. But there's no life to it, there's no vitality, there's no vigor, there's no life. It's, it's nebuch, it's poor, it's impoverished. And this causes divorce. That could lead to divorce. As he says, Al Rebbe says, that he says that the love. Of God and the fear of God is, an, is a necessity. You need that motivation because ultimately, if you just do it by rote and mechanically, but there's no love and there's no feeling, eventually you're going to stop doing the Torah in the mitzvah. Because you can't, you can't, your heart can't be in one place, your mind is in another place, you have no interest. You can force yourself up to a point, but you can't be miserable every day of your life. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if your whole Judaism is going to be miserable, and you look at it as, as, a, as, you can do it out of guilt, you can look at it as a burden, as something I must do, and you just do the bare minimum, and, but your heart is not into it. Your pleasure is not into it. Your heart is not into it. Your mind is not paying attention. There's no awareness. It's something like a duty you, you just take care of. Ultimately, eventually, you're going to stop doing it. You start cutting corners and corners, and before you know it, because you can't. You can't live a double life. It's very hard to live a double life. Very hard to live a double life. It, 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 it grows, it becomes very, very burdensome after a while. And you just, you know, you stop caring. You know, I'm not interested. I can't. So it's, it's, it's a necessity. You have to have motivation. When you have a motivation and you feel that the marriage is growing and you feel that marriage is going places and something exciting and eager and you look forward to, then, um, then it will sustain it. That love will sustain it. So for all of the above reasons, you need to do the Torah, but you need to do the Torah with the proper motivation. Then the Torah becomes godly. It's elevated into the godly realm, and your soul is elevated together with it. And especially after 120 years, you will receive the eternal reward, all the pleasure from all the Torah that you've studied. You will bask in that ecstasy and that pure divine pleasure, and every day there will be a new breakthrough and a new insight and 
and it goes on and on for you know until Mashiach comes. You just continue to grow, and it's exciting, and that's and that's that's the real Ganeidin when it's godly. There's a godly connection. But if you go through your whole life and you're not even aware of godliness, you're not even aware there's a problem. It's one thing a person knows what a good marriage is, and it doesn't happen, so it's, it pains you. <laughs> At least you know what the ideal is. And it pains you, it bothers you. Maybe you threw in the towel, but it bothers you. But imagine a person doesn't even know that there's anything wrong. He thinks that this is it. This is the best that it gets. It doesn't get any better. So you create your own reality. Was the rabbi opposed to the divorce? Yeah, in, many, in most cases, listen, there were times when it was necessary, but in most cases, the Rebbe felt that, um, that uh, they could work out their issues. Most cases, right. most cases they could, right. You know, when you amputate, before you amputate, you're going to go to three specialists, you're going to go to every doctor. You don't just amputate. It's not like, it's not like in America, divorce became like you change your car every three years and, you know. 65%. Yeah, it's an amputation, you know. So even if you have to, you do it with trepidation. You, you do it, it's painful. Only if there's no choice. You, 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 you go through every expert that you can. You try the rabbi, you try the, you try the psychologist, you try this, you try everything that you can. Yes. Sometimes, if they're causing each other misery, and they're just causing, you know, again, a person is not meant, God didn't, <laughs> marriage is not there to suffer. <laughs> So there are times you have no choice because they're just hurting each other too much. They're just causing each other so much grief and so much pain that you can't live like that. So you have no choice. You have no choice. There comes a time the Torah allows for it. You know, sometimes you have to amputate. That's the better thing. To, it's the lesser of the evils. But divorce is an evil. It's a lesser of the evil. Sometimes that's a lesser of the evil. There's no joy in it and there's no... Uh... Okay. Next week we'll continue on page 563.